to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and tokettes and non-token lovers of liberty. It is Monday, February 13th, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode 888, and coming up on today's show, in the Cannabis Focus, we'll examine how President Trump is channeling President Nixon. In drug war data mining, we examine new legalization polls and gauge which arguments work best to convince the undecided. Dr. Mitch Earlywine will join us at half past to get us up to date on all the latest cannabis science. And for today's radical rant, I'll show you the decades crime lab, crime lab scandals that tainted over 50,000 criminal cases. Plus, at hour two, we'll tell you all about Trump's health secretary ignoring medical marijuana questions, reform measures pending in the states, Project Sam's first hired lobbyist, marijuana sponsored athletes, and a country calling for premarital drug testing. But first, Let's get to the marijuana headlines. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your marijuana headline news for Monday, February 13th, 2017. Oregon state legislators are moving toward consolidating the state's medical and recreational marijuana industries into one regulatory system. The co-chairwomen of the Joint Committee on Marijuana Regulation have dropped several bills that would move regulation of medical marijuana from the Oregon Health Authority to the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, the regulatory agency for recreational sales of marijuana. Another proposal would establish a separate agency specifically for cannabis regulation. Part of the idea of splitting up regulation was to keep medical costs down for patients. OLCC instituted much more strict and expensive regulations to report and track product, while OHA's system relied largely on self-reporting. OHA also charges lower fees for registration and for licensing. Wisconsin Attorney General Brad Schimmel says that the Medical community, medical community should decide whether marijuana is suitable medicine and not state lawmakers. Democratic legislators have proposed legalizing medical marijuana after Republican State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said he's open to the idea. But the effort faces long odds given opposition from Republican Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald and Governor Scott Walker. Schimmel told reporters in St. Paul, Minnesota Monday that he doesn't think the decision should be made by lawmakers. He said that power should rest with the Food and Drug Administration and medical organizations which haven't recognized the drug as medicine. Schimmel says marijuana is a gateway drug that can frequently lead to more dangerous drug abuse. Three months after Florida voters overwhelmingly approved a constitutional amendment on medical marijuana, state health officials and prospective pot-seeking patients are at odds over proposed rules that would spell out who could get marijuana. State officials have recommended restrictions on what type of patients can qualify for medical marijuana and where they can obtain it. Their suggestions, however, have prompted a wave of opposition across the state, with nearly 1,300 residents attending what are normally low-key bureaucratic hearings to press for less restricted access to marijuana. 
Activists want a requirement eliminated that a patient must be under a prescribing physician's care for at least 90 days. They also believe it should be up to doctors to deem when medical marijuana is necessary and not be confined by the conditions enumerated in the amendment or by the Board of Medicine. Virginia Lieutenant Governor Ralph S. Northam on Monday called for decriminalization of small amounts of marijuana in Virginia, saying enforcement is expensive and disproportionately jails African Americans. Northam grows, joins a growing list of Virginia politicians interested in the issue. Late last year, Senate Majority Leader Thomas K. Norman Jr., a Republican of James City, questioned whether possession of small amounts of marijuana should remain a crime. Norman, in December, requested a study of the issue from the Virginia State Crime Commission. Because of the pending legislation, because of the pending study, legislation from Senator Adam Ebbing, a Democrat of Alexandria, was put on hold this year. Eben has proposed changing punishment for possession of small amounts of marijuana from a criminal misdemeanor to a civil fine. Starting tomorrow, all edible pot products sold through Washington State's legal marijuana system will bear a label telling consumers that they are not for kids. The label bears a red hand and a written warning, along with a number for the Washington Poison Control Center that people can call if they are worried that they or a child might have overdosed. State licensed marijuana processors are required to either incorporate the warning label onto their packaging for marijuana edibles or put a sticker with the warning label on the products. This has been your Marijuana Headline News for Monday, February 13th, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belville Show presents... The anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Do you want to lose weight fast and have all your hair and teeth fall out? If so, methamphetamine could be right for you. Shooting meth has really improved my self-esteem. My teeth draw tons of attention. I get so much done in such little time. Look at all my scabs. And I've met all kinds of interesting people. You'll be amazed at what meth can do for you. Meth is not for everyone. Symptoms may include paranoia, hallucinations, loss of sex appeal, skin irritations, loss of brain cells, memory loss. This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Exclusively on RadicalRust.com. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Okay. Maybe you're hot, too. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me. Say that. Yeah, baby! Yeah. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. 
The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we want to take a look at President Donald Trump, who is going full Nixon on law and order and vows a, quote, ruthless war on drugs. Philip Smith has written this up for the uh, Drug War Chronicle. He makes a lot of great points with this uh, of Trump reverting back to harsh drug war rhetoric and a series of executive orders to back it up. He was talking to law enforcement professionals, a bunch of sheriffs and other cops at the major cities chiefs association last Wednesday when President Trump said, quote, we're going to stop the drugs from pouring in. We're going to stop those drugs from poisoning our youth, from poisoning our people. We're going to be ruthless in that fight. We have no choice. And we're going to take that fight to the drug cartels and work to liberate our communities from their terrible grip of violence. End quote. Trump also criticized President Obama for his record of drug sentence commutations over 1,700 drug prisoners who uh, had their sentences reduced or eliminated by the president, more than the past, I think, 11 presidents combined. Uh, Trump said that Obama, quote, freed record numbers of drug traffickers, many of them kingpins, end quote. And uh, continuing to the uh, best of the 1980s, he called for harsher mandatory minimum drug prison sentences for the most serious drug offenders and aggressive prosecution of drug traffickers and cracking down on, quote, shipping loopholes that he claims allow drugs to be sent to the U.S. from other countries. Now, uh, of course, last Thursday, he had the swearing-in ceremony for Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and while he was there, he signed three executive orders that seemed to signal an increasingly authoritarian response to crime, drugs, and discontent with policing practices, writes Philip Smith. First executive order is one that would, quote, reduce crime and restore public safety. And what it does is it orders Attorney General Sessions to create a new task force on crime reduction and public policy. And its job is to come up with, quote, Strategies to reduce crime, including, in particular, illegal immigration, drug trafficking, and violent crime. And the Attorney General will then propose legislation to implement those strategies and submit the report to the President within a year. The second executive order signed by Donald Trump last Thursday was regarding, quote, transnational criminal organizations and preventing drug trafficking. And it directs various federal law enforcement agencies to increase intelligence sharing and orders an already existing intra-agency working group to submit a report to President Trump within four months describing the progress they've made in combating the cartels, quote, along with any recommended actions for dismantling them. I'm directing the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security to undertake all necessary and lawful actions to break the back of the criminal cartels that have spread across our nation and are destroying the blood of our youth and other people, end quote. And the third executive order from President Trump directs the Justice Department to use federal law to prosecute people who commit crimes against police officers, despite the fact that almost... Every state you can think of 
already mandates far more severe penalties under their state laws for crimes against police officers. President Trump said, quote, it's a shame what's been happening to our truly great, truly great law enforcement officers. That's going to stop as of today, end quote. So we're getting war on drugs rhetoric. We're getting increasing mandatory minimums. We're going to stop the scourge of drugs that leads to violence and crime and protect our police officers. That's the attitude that we get from the Trump administration right now. Now, people are pushing back at this. The drug reform organizations and other criminal justice organizations are pushing back to try to tell President Trump and his administration that we've been down this road before. We did the whole mandatory minimums thing. We did the whole war on crime, tough on drugs thing throughout the 1970s and the 1980s. And it led our nation to having the highest rate and overall number of incarcerated citizens in the history of the world. We imprison more people than China does, communist China, and they have 1.3 billion people. We have more people in prison overall than China does. And we have more people in as a percentage in our prisons, about 25, 23 to 25% uh, of the world's prisoners reside in the United States of America, the land of the free. You have to uh, take the next three countries combined to match what we have in prisoners. Now, either our people are exceptionally evil, terrible criminals running rampant, or we're doing something very different than the rest of the world does. Now, the uh, a report came out from law enforcement leaders to reduce crime and incarceration. A former police chief of the city of Dallas, David Brown, uh, was a co-author of this. And this is the guy, remember Dallas, he was uh, uh, the chief who uh, had to respond after five cops were killed, were ambushed uh, last year. He says, quote, decades of experience have convinced us of a sobering reality. Today's crime policies, which too often rely on jail and prison only, are simply ineffective in preserving public safety, end quote. They're, they're saying this tough crackdown on crime, we, it didn't work. And what the Obama administration was doing to reform our criminal justice system was the right direction. That's what will work. That's what we're learning from this. And unfortunately, it seems as though reality doesn't matter in the Trump administration. Uh, John Oliver last night did a fantastic piece explaining how they live in an alternate reality, and it's a reality they manufacture in order to advance their agenda, advance their goals. So it doesn't matter that the war on drugs didn't work. It doesn't matter that we have mass incarceration, because in their minds, or at least what they want people to believe is in their minds, they think crime is out of control, that violence is rampant in this country when the crime rates are at the lowest levels we've ever seen. Now, uh, according to uh, the report, Philip Smith's report, uh, his piece is uh, Trump goes full Nixon on law and order. And uh, in this uh, report, he says that the uh, the tough talk and uh, and the executive orders 
provoked immediate alarm, and that the president's crime plan would encourage police to focus on general lawbreaking rather than violent crime. Now, this is that this is that Giuliani era, era uh, uh, broken windows theory of policing. The idea that you don't focus on the violent crime, you focus on the little crime, the, the, the broken windows, the graffiti, the littering, the vandalism, the minor drug use, because by concentrating on those, you create an a atmosphere of, of law-abiding and, and, and a system of order that will then reduce crime in the greater crimes, reduce those crimes, uh, uh, because you have a more orderly society. In a sense, it's kind of a criminal justice trickle-up theory. If we bust the low, little fish, it'll trickle up and reduce crime above. And of course, it did not work. It led to more crime. So they, they want to go back to that. Uh, the Justice Department spends about $5 billion a year, $5 billion a year to support local police. And much of that is spent on quote, antiquated law enforcement tools such as dragnet enforcement of lower-level offenses, and Trump's plan would, quote, repeat this mistake. We cannot fund all crime-fighting tactics, end quote. So it's that, that broken windows system of policing they want to go back to. $5 billion a year spent on just let's just round up all the low-level drug dealers, all the gangbangers, all the, the little crime, and uh, we ignore what happens in the uh, big crime. Bill Piper from uh, Drug Policy Alliance said, quote, this rhetoric is dangerous, disturbing, and dishonest. We have had a war on drugs. It has failed. Tough talk may look good before the cameras, but history has taught us that cracking down on drugs and building walls will not stop the supply or use of drugs. It mostly causes the death and destruction of innocent lives. Trump must tone down his outrageous rhetoric and threats and instead reach out to leadership from both parties to enact a humane and sensible health-based approach to drug policies that both reduce overdose and our country's mass incarceration crisis. This is something that is self-evident to anybody who's paying attention to the reality-based community. There was a 2013 study that came out in the British Medical Journal that found that even though we spent billions and billions of dollars on drug prohibition since 1990, prices went down and purity increased for all drugs except cannabis. Prices of cannabis went up. The authors concluded, quote, these findings suggest that expanding efforts at controlling the global illegal drug market through law enforcement are failing, end quote. And even when we had these massive drug war tactics, the rate of illicit drug use among kids was going up. We've now seen, since we've started legalization and regulation and better youth prevention and education efforts, the rate of cigarette smoking to have gone down to its lowest measured levels ever. Well, that wasn't expected. (laughs) Sometimes the automation software has a mind of its own, people. I do what I can. A lot of buttons to push here. 
I am so full of anticipation that my genitals are sucked up into my body cavity. <laughs> that sounds very uncomfortable. Hey, folks, it's 20 after the hour. That means it's 4.20 in Colorado and the rest of the Mountain Time Zone. Smoke them if you got them. We're going to take a break for our safety meeting. When we come back, we've got some drug war data mining for you. We're going to take a look at two new polls on legalization, plus take a look at some of the uh, best arguments for marijuana legalization. Stay tuned. At Herbie's Cannabis Seeds, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best quality seeds from the world's most respected cannabis seed producers, all at the lowest online prices. You can find Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. All cannabis seeds are sold as souvenirs and as a means of preserving cannabis genetics. Herbie Seeds in no way intends to condone, promote, or incite the use of illegal or controlled substances. We strongly urge all prospective customers to check their national laws prior to placing an order. Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. Proud sponsors of The Russ Belville Show and 420 Radio. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Criminalizing marijuana is costing us a fortune. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they aim you to say that. I smelled some marijuana smoke in Vietnam. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Today in the Drug War Data Mines, we have two polls and a survey to take a look at. The first one coming out of the state of Michigan, a new poll showing majority support for marijuana legalization in the state. It was an epic MRA poll, uh, Educational, Political, Industrial, Consumer, Market, Research, Analysis, epic MRA, uh, out of Lansing, conducted the poll in January and February of this year. It showed that 57% of 600 people surveyed said they would definitely, probably, or lean toward voting yes on a ballot question about legalizing marijuana in Michigan with certain conditions. That result is up four points compared to a similar poll from March of 2016. Am I legalized from, uh, am I legalized 28, which is working to legalize in 2018, uh, is uh, lauding the poll. Uh, Attorney Jeff Hank, the leader of Am I Legalized 2018, says, quote, we commend Michigan Normal for commissioning the poll question. Continuity of this poll lends credibility to the results and establishes this as a reliable gauge of public sentiment. End quote. Now, of course, in 2016, MI Legalize uh, turned in 354,000 signatures to get legalization on the ballot, but they ended up getting screwed out of a ballot position thanks to a state rule on uh, signature validity uh, that required them to be within 180 days. MI Legalize disagreed with the interpretation, but uh, were unable to get on the ballot. 
Senator Rick Jones, a Republican, said he supports medical marijuana, but as a former police officer, doesn't support legalizing recreational marijuana. He says legalizing pot could lead to more accidents on Michigan roads and other problems. He also cited the Not Your Father's Woodstock weed trope that, quote, the marijuana that we have today is much stronger than the marijuana many people grew up with in the 60s and the 70s. This more powerful, it's dangerous, it causes more bad health effects, end quote. He also said that it will only increase unemployment because most employers don't want to hire people that use marijuana and that there's no hope of making it through the legislature. Now, in other news, we go out to the U.S. territory of Guam, where a recent survey from Simon Sanchez High School. First of all, let me just pause and say, how cool would it be to have polling in your high school class, right? Like your your class's job is to poll people. That would have been a fun class. Anyway, uh, Simon Sanchez High School found that 60% of Guam adults oppose legalizing marijuana for adult use. This was advanced placement government students. They polled 1,048 individuals and the, uh, out of 1,048, 632 of them objected to legalizing marijuana. About a third of them said it sends a bad message to our youth about drugs. Yeah, the old bad message trope. That's the, uh, we don't want to send the wrong message to the kids. What is the message we send to the kids when marijuana is illegal? We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to teach you about it. You're on your own. Now, Guam has passed a medical marijuana law, the Joaquin Concepcion II Compassionate Care Use Act. This was in 2014. The governor there, Eddie Calvo, last month introduced legislation to legalize and tax adult recreational use. He believes it could be a multi-million dollar industry for Guam. But, uh, again, most of the people, the majority, especially in the middle age and elderly groups, at 64 and 71 percent respectively, support marijuana prohibition. That's on the island territory of Guam. Now, another uh, study has come out, uh, this one entitled Public Perceptions of Arguments Supporting and Opposing Recreational Marijuana Legalization. And the uh, researchers of this uh, have, have been uh, uh, published in Preventative Medicine. And what they found is they asked people about particular arguments <clears throat> used to support or oppose marijuana legalization and judged which of these arguments were most effective in making the case, either for pro-legalization or for anti-legalization. And what they found is that money was the biggest motivator for people to want to vote for legalization. They were most likely to agree with arguments highlighting legalization's potential to increase tax revenue. 63.9% agreed with legalization for the reasons of increasing tax revenue. And 62.8% agreed with arguments to reduce prison overcrowding. These were much more powerful messages than the anti-legalization messages of reducing motor vehicle crashes, 51.8%, or protecting the health of our youth at 49.6%. The arguments against legalization that resonated best with the people in this survey was the conflict between state and federal marijuana laws at 63%, so just about the same as the reduced prison overcrowding argument, and the assertion that legalization will fail to eliminate 
the black market, 57.2%, found that a compelling reason to vote against legalization. So the economic arguments seem to be the ones that are the most powerful, which gives me pause for concern. Because we have been seeing the prices of marijuana plummet as marijuana becomes more available, more cultivated, and legalization spread throughout the country. These tax revenue arguments are very powerful when you're talking about a 10 or 20 or 30% tax on a $300 ounce. That ounce gets down to $30. I don't think those arguments are going to be quite as compelling. All right, stay tuned. When we come back, we'll get Dr. Mitch Earlywine on the line with our cannabis Q&A, taking a look at the latest studies, surveys, and science on marijuana. State University of New York at Albany, and a leading author and researcher on cannabinoids and health, who pins the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times Magazine. All right, welcome back, everybody. Time for our cannabis Q&A with Dr. Mitch. And uh, Dr. Mitch, how are you doing today? I'm freezing my ass off. How you doing? <laughs> it's pretty cold up there in the Northeast. Uh, we uh, hope you got <laughs> your, keep yourself warm up there. Uh, our question lines are open. We've got two different chat rooms now because we're on YouTube as well. So I'm, I'm watching both YouTube and the uh, cannabis radio stream. And my apologies to the listeners out there who uh, I pushed the wrong mute and uh, they were on mute there for uh, the the commercial break but uh we do have a question <laughs> that's such a new setup dr mitch i got so many buttons and stuff to push oh my god but anyway we had a question i need that to... button for faculty meeting <laughs> there we go we have a uh, question already though coming from one of the chat rooms uh that wants to ask can we finally acknowledge that cbd equals hemp uh as far as when they when, they, when it comes to the uh when it comes to the Controlled Substances Act, when it comes to uh, regulating it, that it should be treated like hemp. Is that something uh, that you see on the horizon? I mean, that makes perfect sense to me, but unfortunately, CBD is still a, a cannabinoid and, and unfortunately gets confused with psychoactive marijuana and thus ends up uh, part of that Schedule One mishmash. I know that there are websites saying we're, we're legal in all 50 states, but un- unfortunately, that's that's really not the case. I think it should be the case, but I think THC should be legal in all 50 states, so maybe I'm not the guy to ask. Mm. All right, and uh, it doesn't look like we'll get any favorable movement in the right direction under this administration. It looked like Obama's administration was kind of moving that way, but uh, we're just getting a lot of drug war rhetoric out of the Trump administration. What what are your feelings on what you've seen so far in these first three weeks? Uh, given how much random stuff has happened, I'm trying to be prepared for anything. But I, I don't see Jeff Sessions suddenly saying, hey, CBD sounds good to me. Just feel free to put it in the mail. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. All right, let's take a look at some of the studies and uh, surveys that have uh, come across the desk here over the past week. One of these, uh, I, I got this uh, information through uh, Michael Kravitz, who works with Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access, and he was pointing out how they were trying to add post-traumatic stress to Colorado's medical marijuana law and how the people from Project SAM 
We're using this new study out of Yale University that supposedly says that uh, there are worse outcomes for PTSD patients who use cannabis medically to treat those symptoms. I know it's not never been your number one uh, go-to as far as PTSD goes, but what do we make of this study? Well, so unfortunately, it's it's more complicated than they're pretending. What's really happened here is there's a subset of folks who are at the VA trying to get treatment for PTSD, and they're having a really hard time. And what a surprise for us. The ones who are having the hardest time are the ones who end up turning to cannabis. So I, I'm afraid this isn't a sign that cannabis is making PTSD worse so much as it is a sign that folks with the worst PTSD may be turning to cannabis. I unfortunately am in a weird situation because I have a, a client right now who's a vet who's really good about showing up to exposure sessions without uh, smoking anything during the daytime, but he does use cannabis at night to help him sleep, and he's doing great right now. I feel like the overextension of cannabis as a cure-all has been a problem, but also this wicked dichotomizing about cannabis being completely inappropriate is also uh, incorrect as well. We have a call coming in on our phone lines, but I don't know that I can pick this one up and keep you on the line, so I'm going to have to decline it for now. I haven't worked out that kink, and I'm not quite ready to, I don't think. Uh, Let's go on to our next study here, which uh, is... It's not really a study. It's more uh, your thoughts on what we've seen out of a couple of studies recently uh, in that uh, we've seen the decline in the teen use of just about all drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes. And I'm just wondering, what are the factors that lead kids to want to try or not try drugs? What is leading to this decline? Uh, Is it the legalization of marijuana or are there other factors involved? Well, so what's funny is before anybody even had, you know, medical cannabis on the books, there were some standard predictors of use, and it was almost always availability and perceived harm. And I think what we thought was going to happen is, oh, more and more people will have access to cannabis. People will see that it's not very harmful for adults. And unfortunately, then the teens are going to jump in there and we're going to all be in trouble. Oh, no. In fact, teens have been surprising us with their intelligence and their ability to make sense of data. And I think the fact that we are saying, hey, there are definite medical uses for cannabis has improved our credibility. So then when we have, you know, Stacey Gruber or somebody like that say, you know what, maybe teen use isn't such a great idea. Check out uh, these brain structure data on the folks who start using heavily early in life. They're listening. And they're saying, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll wait it out. It'll be okay. And there's something about taking away that rebellious forbidden fruit quality of it that I think may be uh, helping out. So when uh, cannabis becomes like uh, mom and dad's Chardonnay, it's just not as exciting anymore. Sad but true. All right. Let's uh, take a look at this story that was uh, appeared on weednews.co about uh, the access to marijuana leading to less use of alcohol and pills. Uh, This is referencing some data from that Ease, uh, the marijuana delivery service in California, but uh, we've seen this as far as uh, opioids go, but is this a a trend now to extend broader into alcohol and and drugs in general? Well, so we've seen it go both ways with alcohol and uh, some large economics uh, data sets have gone uh, both at alcohol increases with medical uh, availability and at alcohol decreases. I'm not sure exactly how this crew gathered their data. So this is sort of the delivery service 
gang that um, basically can can make it so you can get marijuana uh, to your house in in California. I can't imagine they really have any reason to to make this up one way or another. It certainly makes sense to me that uh, hard drug use would drop when you've got cannabis available, particularly given the, the quality of cannabis we have now. And we have seen these really impressive decreases in opiate-related uh, overdoses from that 2014 JAMA study we talked about before. So I'm, I've got to admit this. This is certainly consistent with other stuff we've seen, and I, I hope it uh, really will replicate. There could be some worry that uh, if it, it does replicate, we might get more uh, opposition from pharmaceutical and alcohol industries when we try to legalize elsewhere. Well, I know they hate the truth, but we're just going to have to hope it wins out. That's right. All right. Uh, there was a study that came out from UC Davis uh, on California medical marijuana that showed there were some molds, there was some contamination on these products. And California, while they're working on their testing standards and getting that up to par, they're they're not there yet. Of course, consumers in unregulated states have no chance of it being a tested product. So what can consumers out there do to protect themselves from tainted marijuana? What are some of the signs? How, what are some of the warning signs? I mean, I hate to say it. The thing we really need to do is legalize, regulate, and test. But uh, in the meanwhile, if you smell some crazy mold or see some fungus on there, obviously you don't want to use that. By all means, if you're at a dispensary, ask them, hey, do you guys test for these kinds of things? And if they can't give you a straight answer, try to find another dispensary. When I was literally in college, everybody said, heat your oven up to 200 degrees, spread your cannabis out on a on a tray, put it in there, turn the oven off, and, and wait it out. Sort of like the way we've been talking about decarboxylating and that that was supposed to kill bacteria and fungus. I've been on Google Scholar uh, basically for the last hour since you sent me this link, and I think that may have just been an urban legend. So, so I honestly don't know if that's true or not. I got to admit, we relied on it quite a bit back in the eighties. If if you do have a a bad bud that's got some bud rot or mold or fungus, I mean, can you pick parts of it off and still, you know, like you do with a cheese that's got mold on it, you just cut the little mold part off. The rest of it's all right. Can you do that with cannabis? That. Sadly, it's unlikely because if there's a, a, a concentration that you can actually see, odds are high there's a comparable one that you can't see somewhere in that same bag. I I, I, I mean, the thought of throwing away pot I know is really hard on, on some of our listeners, but as as uh, inexpensive as the as the underground market has gotten, uh, I, I really feel like it's just not worth the risk. Okay, and. Um... Let's go on to this next study, because this is something, you know, we've uh, talked about glioma, a form of brain cancer in the past. And now it looks as though we're getting some studies in uh, showing that these cannabis oil treatments are helping patients with this type of brain cancer. Uh, what are what is the latest on this? So this was done by GW Pharmaceuticals. I do not uh, own that stock anymore, so I don't feel like I have to do my usual um cautions about about that. I, I, I can say that they've been super good about uh, cannabis-oriented sprays, and uh, they're essentially getting a longer survival for this group that has a THC-CBD combination than uh, the placebo group. And it's, you know, it's 550 days versus 369 days. I realize it's not 
it's not like they're even twice as living twice as long or anything like that. But when, you know, when you're at the end of life like this, I feel like every day really counts. And I, I, uh, I always talk about effect sizes, uh, interpreted with the dependent variable. And when the dependent variable is literally death, I would say this is, uh, some compelling evidence despite the small sample size and, and what we usually think of as a small effect. Okay, and our final uh, study to look at today uh, has to do with youth and their use of cannabis, and it says that uh, if they wait until age 17, it may uh, help protect their developing brains. We've always heard, uh, you know, the, the brain's developing until age 25. Is this rolling back that age, or is this something different? It just turns out this is a, sort of a first step towards that, and if you can wait to 25, I think there are advantages that this data set simply could not uh, address. But the the line at 18, we've had uh, from those old data on gray and white matter, uh, again, Stacy Grouper's lab has shown some comparable things. You definitely don't want heavy use early in life, and the later you wait to try, the better things really turn out. This study in particular, you also are noticing some of the deficits are on the sort of IQ tests that go with stuff you should have learned in school. So I'm afraid some of these were kids who may have been high at school and just never really encoded uh, some information that I think of as important that uh, I'm afraid your average person doesn't. And I want to emphasize this is at University of Montreal. This is a new data set. This is not just rehashing some of the old stuff that we've uh, talked about before. So uh, these are French-speaking kids. It's not uh, the Boston data or the stuff we've seen from Peter Fried in the, in the past. So I really do feel like the message to wait is one that we can say with some real relevance. All right. Thank you, Dr. Mitch, and we'll speak to you again next Monday. All right, man. Looking forward to it. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Beginner guitars and banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. The Russ Belleville Show. Chat is for friends 18 and older. We expect our chat to be civil, mature, and free from excessive profanity. If you don't like these rules, there are approximately 6 billion other chat rooms with lower standards that you can visit. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. Or at least they pay me say that i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that a public service message from the russ belleville show
total war against public enemy number one. Ten federal criminal penalties for the one ounce of marijuana. Marijuana is probably the most dangerous drug. Legalization is just another word for surrender. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. This is not medicine. This is a cheat and charm show. Encourage people to use less drugs. I am here. That was that was the point. I think we've made a mistake to leave the state. Negative reports coming out of Colorado. A 64-year-old man in Orlando, Florida, was arrested by police for what they believed to be methamphetamine. He was handcuffed, taken to jail, strip-searched, and then sat there for 10 hours while he came up with $2,500 for his bail. But his alleged meth turned out to be flakes of sugar glaze from a Krispy Kreme donut. So how did a senior's donut habit get him arrested for meth? Because the field drug tests that are used by police officers across America are highly inaccurate and give false positives much of the time. Last July, the New York Times reported on this and found that there's no established error rates for field tests, and their accuracy varies widely. Data from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement lab system show that 21% of evidence that the police listed as methamphetamine after identifying it was not methamphetamine. 21%! And half of those false positives were not any kind of illegal drug at all. In one Florida county, Hillsborough County, their sheriff's deputies produced 15 false positives for meth in the first seven months of 2014. That's from the New York Times. Now, in other words, one in 10 motorists subjected to a field drug test for meth was a completely innocent person in possession of no drug, just like this man. The guy's name is Daniel Rushing, and he had just dropped off one of his friends from a chemotherapy appointment and had stopped off at a 7-Eleven store to pick up another friend. Now, staking out that 7-Eleven was Corporal Shelby Riggs Hopkins, and she was there because of reports of drug activity in the area. So Corporal Riggs Hopkins saw Mr. Rushing fail to come to a complete stop as he was leaving the parking lot. So she tailed him and then pulled him over for driving 42 in a 30 mile per hour zone. Now, while he was producing his driver's license, the corporal saw that he had a concealed weapons permit. And he admitted to having a gun in his lawful possession. So for her safety, she asked him to step out of the car. That's when Mr. Rushing learned a valuable lesson about our Fourth Amendment. Corporal Riggs Hopkins shined her flashlight into the car and spotted, quote, a rock-like substance on the floorboard where his feet were. This is what she wrote in her report, adding, quote, I recognize through my 11 years of training and experience as a law enforcement officer the substance to be some sort of narcotic, end quote. The corporal then asked for Mr. Rushing's permission to search the car, and he voluntarily agreed. And when they asked him why, he said, well, I didn't think I had anything to hide. Well, now after he's been strip-searched and jailed over donut glaze, he seems to have learned his lesson. He told the Orlando Sentinel, quote, I'll never let anyone search my car again, end quote. But uh, when they did the search, uh, the corporal and other officers at the scene collected Four small flecks of the donut glaze, as the Orlando Sentinel wrote it up, quote, uh, this was the uh, uh, Mr. Rushing said, quote, I kept telling him, that's glaze from a donut, 
They tried to say it was crack cocaine at first. Then they said, no, it's meth, crystal meth, end quote. And the arrest report confirms that he tried to tell them. Corporal Riggs Hopkins wrote, quote, Rushing stated that the substance is sugar from a Krispy Kreme donut that he ate. I think the irony of all this is if you think there'd be anybody on the planet who could identify the flecks of donut glaze, it would be cops, wouldn't it? But uh, she whips out the standard field drug test kit. They got these little things, you know, little vials. You drop the suspected substance in, it changes color, tells you what the drug is. She whips out one of those kits, drops in one of the flecks of sugar. It comes up positive for amphetamine. So she reruns the test. And again, it comes up positive for amphetamine. Thanks to that test, that's all the evidence she needed to then arrest Mr. Rushing, read him his Miranda rights, and charge him with possession of meth with a firearm. Within the next three days, the state crime lab runs its test on the material and determines that it is not an illegal substance, and the state attorney's office drops the charges. Now, the Orlando Police Department's standing by the arrest, saying it's a lawful arrest despite a lawsuit now filed by Mr. Rushing for damages. The uh, OPD couldn't explain why two separate field drug tests on the sugar came up positive for meth. A spokesperson for OPD revealed that they have no idea how often false positives cause false arrests of innocent people. Writing to the Orlando Sentinel, quote, At this time, we have no responsive records. There is no mechanism in place for easily tracking the number of, or results of, field drug testing, end quote. And Florida's Department of Law Enforcement is unable to determine its rate of false positive tests or corroborate the New York Times claim that they've got a 21% false positive rate for meth. And the Times also reported last summer that the government's been warning for four decades now that these field tests are junk science. This is from the New York Times again. Quote, In a 1974 study, however, the National Bureau of Standards warned that the kits should not be used as sole evidence for the identification of a narcotic or drug of abuse. Police officers were not chemists, and chemists themselves had long ago stopped relying on color tests, preferring more reliable mass spectrographs. By 1978, the Department of Justice had determined that field tests should not be used for evidential purposes, and the field tests in use today remain inadmissible at trial in nearly every jurisdiction. Instead, prosecutors must present a secondary lab test using more reliable methods. But this has proved to be a meaningless prohibition. Most drug cases in the United States are decided well before they reach the trial, in the far more informal process of plea bargaining. In 2011, RTI International, a nonprofit research group based in North Carolina, found that prosecutors in nine out of ten jurisdictions it surveyed nationwide accepted guilty pleas based solely on the results of these field drug tests. And in the Times' own reporting, we confirmed that prosecutors or judges accept plea deals on that basis in Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, Jacksonville, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Newark, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, San Diego, Seattle, and Tampa. That's from the New York Times. So let this be a lesson to you, first of all. Always come to a complete stop, obey the speed limit, and never consent to a search. But this should scare the hell out of us when it comes to our system of justice, that we have so many of these plea bargain cases being decided, being argued, uh, yeah, being decided based on 
a field drug test that a cop uses, not a chemist, not anybody with any sort of understanding of the chemistry involved, but a cop using a color test that cannot be admitted in trial. It's good enough to bust you, but not good enough to convict you. And as if that's not bad enough, the other thing that we got in this country is this, you got these crime procedural shows like CSI that lead the public to believe that forensic science is this unimpeachable tool for proving guilt in court. But forensic science is only as reliable as the people that are conducting it. And unfortunately, for well over 50,000 suspects over the past decade, technicians in crime labs have been implicated in falsely convicting innocent people, not just for drugs, but for rape and murder as well. Now, some of the worst cases of these crime lab shenanigans involve forensic lab technicians who don't actually run the tests on the evidence that's suspected to be illegal drugs, but simply certify the evidence as illegal drugs by looking at it. This process is called dry labbing. And even worse are the cases where techs are planting illegal drugs into evidence that weren't there, or substituting legal drugs into evidence to replace illegal drugs that they're stealing. The biggest case that comes to mind, in Massachusetts, Annie Dukin was a former state crime lab analyst who was sentenced to three to five years in prison in 2013 for obstruction of justice, tampering with evidence, perjury, and falsification of academic records. Ms. Dukin had been dry labbing up to 500 evidence samples per month from 2009 through 2012. In court, Ms. Dukin admitted to adding cocaine to some samples that did not have cocaine in them. In January, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court refused to overturn en masse over 20,000 convictions directly related to Ms. Dukin's mishandling of evidence. Instead, the court has adopted a procedure to determine whether each individual case should be retried or dismissed. And this could affect up to 34,000 cases in the state of Massachusetts. In New Jersey, Camelcant Shaw was a lab tech for the New Jersey State Police who was also dry labbing his test results, affecting the criminal cases, about 14,800 criminal cases on which he worked from 2005 to 2016. Ellie Honig, the director of the Division of Criminal Justice, told county prosecutors that, quote, Mr. Shaw was observed in one case spending insufficient time analyzing a substance to determine if it was marijuana and recording an anticipated result without properly conducting the analysis, end quote. Mr. Shaw had been paid a salary of $101,039 a year and had been working as a forensic scientist for 27 years. Now, this guy has not been sentenced yet. The uh, Annie Dukin was sentenced, uh, and for three to five, she's already out of prison. The uh, uh, New Jersey lab tech hasn't been uh, tried. But for a crime lab tech to receive a three-year sentence or less is shocking. Uh, in New Jersey, a, a person convicted of possession with intent to distribute less than an ounce of marijuana can face 1.5 years in prison and a $25,000 fine. So if Mr. Shaw's dry labbing helped them convict even two people for selling personal amounts of marijuana, they could do that three years worth of time. 
In Massachusetts, cocaine is a Class B drug, which carries the threat of a year in jail and a $1,000 fine, first offense, and twice that for subsequent offenses. So if three people were convicted of possessing the the cocaine that Ms. Dukin added to some of the clean samples, they could have done as much time combined as she did. And again, those two lab techs alone, 50,000 cases, eh, 48, 48,800 cases that were affected. And of course, we've also got cases where uh, the drug lab techs are stealing drugs and replacing them with over-the-counter drugs. In California, Deborah Madden worked for the San Francisco Police Department for 29 years. Uh, She affected 700 drug cases thanks to her thefts of cocaine. 25 cases already got dropped. Uh, The federal government uh, convicted her and she got a sentence of one year of house arrest and a $5,000 fine. In Maryland, a crime scene technician was busted for heroin trafficking. Uh, she, uh, they found two handguns, 100000 in cash, and a capsule-making machine with 125 capsules filled with heroin. In Oregon, Nika Larson worked at the Oregon State Police, uh, Central Oregon in Bend, stole more than 700 doses of morphine, hydrocodone, diazepam, methamphetamine in pill form, tramadol, and methadone. She got 36 months, despite her crimes affecting about 2,500 cases. And in Florida, Joseph Graves was a lab tech for the Florida State Police 2006 to 2014, stole approximately 5,000 doses of opiates and benzos and swapped in over-the-counter pills to hide it. He got convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison. He worked on about 2,600 cases statewide, stole evidence in about 90 of those cases, and some of those cases were dropped or the charges were reduced. Well, folks, that's all the time we got for Hour 1. Stay tuned live for Hour 2, and hold on tight, folks. I'm working on that website so we can get the VIP memberships so you podcast listeners can get your Hour 2 as well. For everyone here at Delta 9 Studios, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us, and until next time... Take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seat, you panic, you grow it, you're giant, you roll it, you're small, yeah. You take a seat, you panic, you grow it, you're giant, you roll it, you're small, yeah. You take a seat, you panic.